0: My name is Bruno, I'm the pastoral resident here at Winchester Baptist Church, and I invite you to please open your Bibles to the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. Isaiah chapter 6. Please follow with me. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to these people, Keep on hearing. But do not understand. Keep on seeing. But do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull. And their ears heavy. And blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes. And hear with their ears. And understand with their hearts. And turn and be healed. Then I said. How long O Lord? And he said. Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Please pray with me. Lord, please open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. Open our hearts to understand. That today we may understand what your saint was in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whatever you think about God, that's the most important thing that you think. Whatever you think about God, that's the most important thing that you think. I'm not that clever. I took that from Suhel Michelin. Suhel is a pastor in the Dominican Republic, and if you know any Spanish, then Go listen to him. I think he's one of the most blessed preachers around today. Well, whatever we think about God, that's the most important thing that we think. What we think about God will determine what we think about everything else. John Calvin, maybe you know this, he begins the institutes with the following quote. Our wisdom, in so far as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. Maybe you heard the old Greek saying, Know thyself, it's very important to know yourself. Calvin is challenging this concept. And he's saying this, yes, of course, it is important to know ourselves. But until we know God, we'll never truly know ourselves. Okay, one last quote and no more quoting, I promise you. The most terrifying truth of Scripture is that God is good. The most terrifying truth of Scripture is that God is good. And we are not. I heard that from Paul Washer. And, okay, I want to give him credit. So, Hell Michelin, John Calvin, Paul Washer, they're coming to the same conclusion. Until we know God, we don't really know ourselves. Until we know who God is, we don't really know anything. So before I go any further, I also have to give credit to R.C. Pro, The first book that I read as a grown-up Christian, was The Holiness of God by R.C. pro I read a few Christian books before that, but they were about the Great Flood or Jonah and the whale. They were books full of pictures. So the first Christian book with no pictures at all that I read <laughs> was The Holiness of God. And it just had a huge impact in my life. I dare say, maybe I became a Christian by reading this book. So it's entirely impossible for me to go over Isaiah 6 without remembering some of the things that Sproul says in that book. He makes a very good exposition of this chapter, so I want to give credit to R.C. Sproul for many of the things that I'm going to say today. I, I even... Wonder, I suppose, that when Paul Washer says that the most terrifying truth of Scripture is that God is good, that he's being influenced by Arsis Pro when he says that. So, God is good and we are not. God's holiness is supposed to be a good thing. How can God's holiness be something scary? And yet, it is. What could be better for us than knowing that the universe was created and is sustained by a holy God? And yet, this becomes a problem because God is holy and we are not. That's the problem. And how do we solve this problem? How do we solve the problem that God is holy and we are not? That's what I want us to see today. So my prayer is that we can trust this holy God to solve this problem for us and to lead us into a life of gratitude for him. So... The first point for us today is that God is holy, and because we are sinful, that's a problem. So, maybe you notice that up to this point, the first five chapters of Isaiah are mostly oracles that Isaiah is saying. Oracles are the sayings of the prophet. And basically everything in the first five chapters is poetry. And there are good reasons why Isaiah is using poetry in these first five chapters. And now, in chapter 6, we have the first portion of the book of Isaiah that is historical narrative. Historical narrative is one of the genres that we find in the Bible. We usually have historical narrative in the historical books of the Bible, But we also have historical narratives in the prophets in general and in Isaiah in particular. And one historical narrative that is very important is the prophetic call. It's the narrative of how the prophet is called to be a prophet. And this is very important because we listen to Isaiah the way that we do because he was a prophet called by God if he was not called by God, his words would not have the same value. So we have a prophetic call in Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah being called to be a prophet. We have a prophetic call in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel being called to be a prophet. And Isaiah is the oddball because we only hear his calling now in chapter 6. So... What took Isaiah so long to tell us about his prophetic call? Why we need to wait until chapter 6? Well, uh, remember, when we were on chapter 1, I mentioned that we don't know a lot about Isaiah the person. I think that we read Jeremiah or Ezekiel, and we get the sense that we really know Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Not so much with Isaiah. We... We know that Isaiah was a prophet. we know when he lived. We know that he had a wife and kids, but not not much more than that. It's almost as if Isaiah doesn't want to call attention to himself. he wants us to he wants to tell us, don't pay attention to me, Isaiah the prophet. pay attention to the message that I'm giving here, and maybe that's why. We need to wait until chapter six to hear about his cult. It's, it's a possibility. So Isaiah wants us to pay attention not to him as a prophet, but to God's message and to the character of God. And so this is a historical narrative, and like in any good story, we have a setting, the characters and a problem. The setting, the characters, and a problem. And the setting on verse 1 says, it's the year that King Uzziah died. So King Uzziah died in 740 BC. Does that tell you something? Well, okay, we can say more than just a number, right? Uzziah was king in Jerusalem for 52 years. Think about that for a second, 52 years. How many presidents did the US have in the past 52 years? You don't have to answer. A lot of presidents, right? Imagine that, 52 years, and you have only one king. Imagine if the president died tomorrow. Please put whatever political opinions you have aside And think about this question. If the president died tomorrow, it would be really tough. It would be hard for the nation. It happened before, right? In U.S. history. And now you have a king who was reigning for half a century, and he is dead. If you go to... uh, the books of Kings and Chronicles, you can learn more about Uzziah, and I encourage you to do that. Uzziah was a very good king. He expanded the borders militarily. He was very strong, very strategic, intelligent. For most of his life, he was a very good king. He began reigning when he was 16 years old but the last years of his life were in shame because Uzziah was very powerful, and so he thought he could enter the temple to burn incense, something that as a king he was not supposed to do, something that only other people were supposed to do. And because of that, God struck Uzziah with leprosy. And so the last years of his life, he had to live in a separate house because of his leprosy. A very good king who finished his days in decadence. Uzziah's reign is a picture of what was going on with Judah. They seemed to be powerful because they were militarily strong, but their hearts was turn, were turning away From the Lord. And that's when Isaiah saw God inside the temple. So, it's not clear here if this temple is the temple in Jerusalem or if it's the heavenly temple. But in any case, the king, Uzziah, is dead. And now Isaiah is seeing the real king. He's seeing God. Uzziah is dead. But God is very much alive. So we have the setting, and we have the characters. And often, in a story, we have a protagonist and an antagonist. The protagonist is the main character in the story. Who is the main character of the Bible? Jesus. Jesus is usually the right answer. Jesus is the main character of the Bible. But in this story in particular, this is Isaiah's call. So Isaiah is the protagonist in this story. And the second character is the antagonist. The antagonist is the character that opposes the main character. Who is opposing Isaiah in this chapter? We only have three characters. Isaiah, the seraphim, and God. God is opposing Isaiah. Maybe that sounds weird because we think of the antagonist as the bad guy, the evil guy. But that's not necessarily so. It's just someone who is opposing Isaiah. God is opposing Isaiah. God... He's high and lifted up. He's so huge, so great, that the temple cannot contain him. He's a real king. When we see the Lord in this chapter, that's a translation for Adonai, which means Lord. It means sovereign. That's who God is. And God is surrounded by seraphim. What are seraphim? Great question. We don't have a lot of seraphim throughout the Bible, but in this chapter, we know some things about the seraphim. So they are some kind of celestial being. Uh, Their name means something like the burning ones. And they have six wings. So they have two wings to fly. That's easy enough, wings to fly. But they also have wings that cover their feet. And the traditional interpretation is that they are covering their feet because they respect God. It's like when Moses is in the presence of God and he takes off his sandals. That's the traditional interpretation. And they have wings to cover their faces because they can't see God. We see that throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. We cannot see God or else we will be destroyed because of his holiness and our sinfulness. And even these beings who have no sin, they cannot look directly unto God because God is high and lifted up. And the other thing we know about the seraphim is that they are constantly calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So maybe you heard this in Hebrew. When they want to emphasize something, they repeat. So that's why we see Jesus saying something like, Amen, amen, I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you. So they just repeat, and we know that it's important, and we are supposed to pay attention. But here... There's something totally exceptional happening. The seraphim are not saying, Holy is God. They are not saying, Holy, holy is God. They are saying, Holy, holy, holy is God. Anyone who knows any Hebrew knows that something really odd is happening here. They're saying that God is holy beyond any measure. There is no way that we can truly express how holy is our Lord. So that's the setting. Those are the characters. And then we have a problem. The problem is that God is holy and Isaiah is not. Sinclair Ferguson defines God's holiness as God's own, wholehearted, affectionate devotion to himself. The loving devotion of each member of the Trinity to the other two. God is fully devoted to himself. That's God's holiness, full devotion to himself. Now, think about that. If I said, I am fully devoted to myself, Bruno is fully devoted to Bruno, that would sound terrible. That would sound like I'm selfish. I'm egocentric, I don't care about others. And it would be true. It's awful when a person like me who is a sinner is fully devoted to himself. But God is not only holy. God is free, wise, absolute, Just, loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. God is all these things. God's holiness is a loving holiness. God's holiness is a merciful holiness. God's holiness is a wise holiness. And is a just holiness. We were created in God's image. We were supposed to be as holy as He is holy. We were supposed to be as devoted to God as He is devoted to Himself. And we are not. And there's something else that the seraphim are saying. They are saying the whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim have their eyes closed. And yet they can see that the whole earth is full of God's glory. Can you see that the earth is full of God's glory? I know I can't. It's easy to see that the earth is full of God's glory when God is showering His mercies on my life. But what about when God is being just? What about I'm in suffering and in pain and I don't understand what God is doing? When King Uzziah dies, that's not a moment in which I can see that the whole world is full of his glory. And yet, it is. We are not thinking God's thoughts after him as we should. We don't see things. We don't have the right perspective that we should have. And that's why the temple was shaking. That's why there was smoke in the temple. It's very much like in Mount Sinai. It's very much like when Solomon built the temple. And the Shekinah, the presence of God, entered the temple. And the temple was shaking, just like the mountain of Sinai. And something else was shaking, I'm sure. Isaiah's legs. Isaiah understood the problem perfectly well. God is holy. He was sinful. And that's why, that's when Isaiah made his first oracle as a prophet. Woe is me. He called a curse upon himself, answering to God's holiness. My friends, that's our problem. That's the fundamental problem that everyone in this room has. God is holy. And we are not. We can call it by other names. Instead of saying that our problem is that we are sinful, we can say, I've been really stressed. Sorry, it's my culture. I'm Brazilian. Oh, it's not a sin. It's your fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my children. We can try that again and again, but the reality is one and the same. Our problem is that God is holy and we are not. Our problem is not our parents. Our problem is not our children. It's not our job. It's not whoever is in Washington. Those, are, those can be problems, and I want to be sensitive to that. But when the rubber meets the road, our problem is that we have a holy God and we are not holy. So that's the problem. The second point is, thankfully, the solution. How can we solve the problem of a holy God? And the solution is that God is also merciful. So... Now we have the highest tension in this narrative. God is holy, Isaiah is sinful, and God brings the solution. One of the seraphim flies to Isaiah, having in his hands a burning coal that he took from the altar with tongs, and he touches Isaiah's mouth with a burning coal. Think about that for just a second. A burning coal touching your mouth, burning, and you smell something. It's your flesh that is burning. That's what you're smelling. Imagine the pain that Isaiah was feeling at this moment. But the pain that Isaiah was feeling was nothing compared to the forgiveness. I'm pretty sure that coals cannot take away sin. Hebrews 10:4 says, "It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." It's not saying coals, but I think it's implied. There is only one thing that can take away our sins, and it is the blood of Jesus. That coal was taken from the altar. So this is very symbolic. The altar is where the Israelites were supposed to bring their offerings to God. That's the place where their sin was atoned for. That altar and that coal were pointing to Jesus. Jesus. Again, in Hebrews, Hebrews 9 says, Hebrews 9:11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect stand, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once and for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That call was pointed to Jesus. It is through Jesus' sacrifice, just like Rob prayed a few moments ago, our sin is credited to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is credit to us. That's the gospel. So one illustration that I like about this, it's not a perfect illustration. I heard this from Chuck Swindle, and I don't know much about Chuck Swindle's theology, but I like this illustration. It's like a boy trying to tie his shoelaces. I saw a boy earlier this morning trying to tie his shoelaces. I'm not going to name any names, poor Walter. Uh <laughs> and he's there trying to tie his shoelaces. And you he asking, "Hey, do you want help?" "No, no, I got it. I got it." And he's trying and trying and just becomes a mess. And when an hour later, "Okay, can you help me please?" And you go there and in one second you do what he was trying to do for an eternity. We are very much like this boy. We are trying to sew things by ourselves until God comes and sews. Except that it's much, much worse. We are not just a boy trying to tie our shoelaces. We are dead We are not sick, we are not tired, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We were enemies of God, sons of disobedience. And the only solution to this problem is not just a father who comes and ties our shoelaces. It's a God who makes us born again. So we can come with all sorts of solutions, quote-unquote. We can say, I don't know, I'll get a new job. I'll follow a diet. I need to exercise more. I'll, I'll even, I'll read more books. I'll work harder. Uh, I'll take a vacation. I'll divorce my spouse. Marry someone else? Those are not solutions to our real problem. Our fundamental problem is that God is holy and we are not. And there is only one who can solve this problem for us. Jesus. God cannot deny who he is. Thankfully. Thankfully. God will never stop being holy. He won't change. But God can change us. He can make us again into his image through the blood of Jesus. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism says that. Heidelberg Catechism. I'm sure many of us are familiar. In in question one it asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Well, where do we go from here? That was the point of highest tension. Isaiah's problem is solved. His sins were atoned for. Well, Now we have a resolution to this story. And now what? Now God calls Isaiah to a life of grateful service for him. So ironically, that's the first time that we actually hear God speaking in the whole chapter. And what does God say? Whom shall I send? and who will go for us parentheses some people believe that this is a subtle reference to the trinity see how it's saying who is go who will go for us and not for me singular closing the parentheses and isaiah immediately responds here i am send me the same guy who was saying, woe is me, now he's saying, here I am, send me. Amen. And Isaiah's commission is not an easy one. God is saying that because of his preaching, people will harden their hearts even more. It would be great if God told Isaiah, Isaiah, go preach and you will see Everybody will repent from their sins and ask for forgiveness. But God is saying, this is not what is going to happen. Because of your preaching, people will harden their hearts. People, I cannot emphasize this more. God is not the offer of sin. People will harden their hearts. God is not hardening the hearts of anybody. God is not forcing anybody to sin. People are doing that by themselves. But God knows that his message will have this effect on people. His message will make people even more dull, will make people even more worth a judgment. Somebody, I can't remember who, so no more quotes, said that this is every preacher's dilemma. We must preach. But like Paul says in Second Corinthians, To some, we are the fragrance of life. To others, we are a fragrance of death. Isaiah 6, these verses 9 and 10, is quoted several times in the New Testament. So it's valid in the New Testament as well. We will preach, and some will repent and be saved. We will preach, and some will reject the preaching and harden their hearts even more. So this is a dilemma for every Christian. Observe that Isaiah talks about eyes and ears, but he begins and he ends with the heart. Faith comes by hearing, but it's really the heart that must be changed, and through our preaching, every heart will be changed, some for worse and some for better. Do you think that's weird? Do you think that it's hard to think that because of our preaching, some will be saved But others will harden their hearts even more. It's because we don't think God's thoughts after him. We don't see things through his perspective. God's plans are not our plans. Judah has broken the covenant. God has all the right to bring judgment on them. Isaiah preaching will have a double effect. On the one hand, it will bring judgment on some. God promised Abraham three things land, offspring, and blessing. And all these things will be taken away from Judah. But not forever. God will leave a stump in the land. And that stump will be the Holy Seed. This is the fundamental story of the Bible. God entered into a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works. And Adam broke that covenant because Adam was the representative of all of us his descendants, all of us broke that covenant with Adam. We are subjected to God's judgment. But immediately after, God told the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the gospel. This here in Genesis 3:15 is the gospel. God promised Abraham an offspring, a seed. That's the fundamental story of the Bible. Is this battle between the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of the serpent. God promised an offspring to Abraham. And yes, Judah is Abraham's offspring. But remember what Paul says in Galatians 3.16. God promised Abraham an offspring, singular, not offsprings, plural. And Abraham's offspring is Jesus. Jesus is the fundamental holy seed who will be left in the land and through whom God will bring salvation to many. So, I quoted almost all, all of the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. I left one line and it says, Because I belong to him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. We can divide the Heidelberg Catechism into three sections. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. GGG. G, guilt, Grace and gratitude. And that's what we see in this chapter. Isaiah's guilt. God's grace. And the gratitude that Isaiah has now to live for God. Not for himself, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's an application for us as well. We need to stop thinking, what is up for me? What do I have to gain? And start to ask, what will bring God, this holy God, more glory? So, we need to stop living for ourselves and start to live in gratitude to God. Whatever We think about God. That's the most important thing that we think. God's holiness is a problem because of our sinfulness. But this God brings a solution in the blood of Jesus so that we can live a life of gratitude for this God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you because you are holy. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you because you cannot change. And the reason we are not destroyed is because you do not change. And thank you because you brought a solution to our problem of sinfulness. Please transform our hearts to confess our sins, and to look for salvation in you. We are saved from you, through you, and to you. Please, God, that we might live a life of gratitude for this great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.